1: Today is August the 24th, 2018, and this is episode 2279 of the Survival Podcast as we've hit another Friday, the end of the week, and that means it's time for the Monster Show of the Week, a.k.a. the Expert Council Q&A Show. I've got a pretty big lineup for you guys. This show will be a little longer than the Expert Council shows usually are. we got eight expert council members. I had a big, pretty big piking problem uh, about two weeks ago and did not have much material. Wasn't even sure that last Friday we'd have an expert council show because of the piking of the council, but I shook the council tree and a whole bunch of stuff fell out of it. I've got enough to do next week already as well. Uh, and then Monday I'm going fishing with my buddy David and my uh, brother-in-law Mark. Uh, so Monday's going to be a Rewind show. So since the Rewind show is coming on Monday, I'll go ahead and give you guys a little bit longer of a show today, especially since uh, we were so fruitful in our deep piking of the pikers. So what do I got today? What is the uh, the Dakin's treatment for wounds? You'll find out about that from Doc Bowles. This is a pretty valuable piece of information. Uh, how do you prevent, prevent or reduce DPM in pastured poultry with Darby Simpson? What's DPM? Darby will tell you. Uh, security and safety with a generator without going overboard from Stephen Harris, who doesn't go on a rant but goes right to the edge of a full-on Harris rant, where I recommend, once again, that he move to a state with medical marijuana. Uh, doesn't quite go that far, though. Guarding, gardening under a tree canopy with Nick Ferguson. Setting up a hobby knife shop for under 1000 bucks with Patrick Rohrman. Uh, all about HF radios with Tim Glance the current state of the crypto market with Benjamin Fitz, and uh, thoughts on working with both NDs and MDs from Gary Collins. And then I'm going to answer a question that I kind of talked about this week with a question on the housing market. What is the right time for a young person to buy their first house? Because I realized, like I was like, well, I'm not going to do that because I think I kind of just covered that, and I thought, well, I covered it from a standpoint of what's going to happen in the market. I didn't come from the standpoint of being 28 and going, do I buy this house or not? And I may have caused more confusion. So I'll try to deconfuse the confusion and, uh, again, give you my philosophy on real estate that, that has worked well for me uh, in owning six different properties. I have never taken a loss on a property. And I've, I've bought properties in good markets that I've sold in supposed bad markets and still done just fine. So I'll try to talk about how you set yourself up for that, and how you make the decision if the time is right for you as an individual under your circumstances. And we'll do all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's take a look at this day in history. It's August the 24th, and we're going back all the way to the year 79. Not 1979, 79 A.D. Vesuvius erupts. After centuries of dormancy, Mount Vesuvius erupts in southern Italy, devastating the prosperous Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum and killing thousands. The cities are buried under a thick layer of volcanic material and mud. They were never rebuilt and largely forgotten in the course of history. In the 18th century, Pompeii and Herculaneum were rediscovered and excavated, providing an unprecedented archaeological record of everyday life of an ancient civilization startlingly preserved in sudden death. Today, Mount Vesuvius is the only active volcano on the European mainland. Its last eruption was in 1944, and its last major eruption was in 1631. Another eruption is expected in the near future, which could be devastating for the 700,000 people who live in the death zones around Vesuvius. Um, My thoughts on this one are there's almost a million people that live where they could end up killed by these volcanoes. The difference today is we have these these folks called volcanologists. It's a real thing. It means they study volcanoes, volcanologists. And they keep an eye on this stuff, and it is most likely the case that before any major eruption, we would have some foreknowledge and some time for these 700,000 people to leave. We talk about bugging out, bugging in, and things like that a lot on the show. A volcanic eruption that is imminent is an example of when you absolutely are going to need to bug out. And you wonder how many of those 700,000 people have any idea of what would really be required of them them if they had to leave. Because you're talking about the possible complete destruction of their homes. You often wonder why people live in places like this or any other place where complete destruction could happen. And when you start analyzing it, you realize there's actually not a lot of places where there isn't some major threat. The entire east coast of the United States, I don't remember the island, but there's an island off the coast of Africa that's volcanic, that sooner or later, that, that basically the top of that island mountain will fall off and go into the ocean, and it will create a tsunami that will largely devastate the entire eastern United States. It's not an if, it's a when. It could be a 1,000 years. It could be 10,000 years. It could be 10 years. We just don't know. If you look at the west coast, they have similar threats from earthquakes, forest fires, tsunamis. Right here in Texas, we have threats from hurricanes, tornadoes, etc. There just ain't a lot of places where there isn't something that could be completely devastated, uh, devastating to the entire community and the people that live within it. And that's all the more reason to be prepared. And that's why we do the things that we do. And the fact that it doesn't mean that it's going to happen is why we take the approach of living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Uh, We have advantages the people in the year 79 A.D. did not have. However, we are still the same frail human beings, and the same things that killed them could in fact kill us or devastate our lives. Just another reason to be prepared. With that, let me remind you before I dive into today's show and uh, bring up the first one with uh, Doc Bones, that if you like this show and the work that we do, a way to make sure it's always here and available to you is to join the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. If you do that, you help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Additionally, if you use the dad-gone discounts that are in there, it won't cost you anything in the end because you get all your money back and more. Uh, Most people tell me that use the discounts that they consider the membership to be an investment that profitably returns to them every year. And if you are military law enforcement Peace Corps, active due to your prior service or first responder like an EMT, paramedic, firefighter, etc., you qualify for the service discount. Before you join, email me, TSPC in the subject line, and uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. That's all I need. I'll get you the discount code back and do that before, not after you join. Again, the email address for all email to me. Jack at com. There's no secret email. There's no secret squirrel email. There's no special account that only friends get. I'm giving you the email that everybody gets. I do have other email addresses. They all go to the same place. They're all forwarded to that one. Uh, But the way to make sure I see it, no matter what you're emailing me about, even if it's not directly show-related, TSPC in the subject line, that helps me dig it out of the Spam Monster folder if it ends up in there. And stuff does every week. I'll warn you, too, if you email me and it goes in there, you might not hear back for a while, uh, so you might want to hit me up again. Sometimes I don't get into that spam folder for a week at a time. All right, with that, let's go ahead and hear from Doc Bones of something called the Dakin's Treatment for Wounds. Doc, take it away.
2: Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. What kind of affordable and simple method can you use that would give you a good chance of preventing or actually even treating infections in open wounds? Mm-hmm. Well, there is one method that was used as far back as World War I, and that could be the answer for the medic, and that is wound care with something called Dakin's Solution. Now, Dakin's Solution is the product of the efforts of an English chemist, Henry Drysdale Dakin, and a French surgeon named Alexis Carrel who was actually a Nobel Prize winner in medicine. In their search for a useful antiseptic to save the life of wounded soldiers during World War 1, they used something called sodium hypochlorite. You actually have sodium hypochlorite at home, that is household bleach and baking soda to make a solution that actually had a pretty significant protective effect against infection. The chlorine in the solution had a type of solvent action on dead cells that prevented the accumulation of bacteria in open wounds. They were using chlorine for its protective effect against infection to save lives during World War I, as at the same time, both sides in that war were also using chlorine in a gas or a gaseous swarm as an anti-personnel weapon actually blinded people caused severe burns in their lungs on, on their skin it was a a terrible weapon it's just sort of funny to see that they actually did find a use that could heal wounds as well actually a little bit of a surprise that they were able to do that uh that long ago well today Dakin solution is still considered effective enough. I mean, this 100-year-old solution, considered effective enough to be used after surgery and on chronic wounds like bed sores by many practitioners. It's, It's very easily prepared. It can be made stronger or milder by varying the amount of bleach you use. And you use it simply to clean the wound during dressing changes or by pouring onto the affected area. Some people moisten dressings that are used to put in an open wound. Now let's talk about what the recipe is to make Dakin solution. You're going to need just a few items and this recipe, and we're going to make a video on this as well, but this recipe is from uh, the Ohio State University's Department of Inpatient Nursing. Start off with unscented, not extra concentrated household bleach that sodium hypochlorite solution 5.25 percent and baking soda sodium bicarbonate a pan with a lid a sterile measuring cup and spoon sterilize them uh, by boiling or in the dishwasher uh, in the heating cycle sterile canning jar and a sterile lid so this is something you can also use in the dishwasher or you can also boil Of course, then wash your hands, as you would before any medical procedure, and then put four cups of water, 32 ounces of water, into the pan and cover it with the lid. Then boil it for 15 minutes with the lid on, remove it from the heat source, and then use the sterile spoon to add a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the water. Then you'll add bleach in the amount needed, and that's going to depend a little bit on the strength you want. A full-strength taken solution is 0.5% sodium hypochlorite, that's uh you would add 95 milliliters or three ounces or six tablespoons of bleach to that solution for half strength you would use 48 milliliters that's about uh, three tablespoons plus maybe half a teaspoon quarter strength would be uh one tablespoon plus uh, maybe two teaspoons maybe one one and a half one one and two thirds tablespoons and one eighth strength would be just two and a half teaspoons. So that's how much you would use to make one eighth, one quarter, one half strength, and full strength Dakin solution. Now, if you don't, rem- if you didn't remember this, three teaspoons equals one tablespoon equals 14.7 milliliters. Two tablespoons equals one U.S. ounce. That's 29.5 milliliters. By the way, once you do that, what are you going to do with it, right? You let it simmer there and then pour it into a sterile canning jar and close it with a sterile lid. The most important thing is that it does not like light and heat. And so store it in a dry, dark, cool place. You might consider even wrapping it with some aluminum foil. That's something that you can do as well. And that would certainly keep it dark. And you can actually have that around for about 30 days before you need to discard it, before it loses its potency and you need to discard it. For survival purposes though, I would make it as I need it for wounds that occur, or maybe just have a, a jar or two available at, at any one time. Because remember, once you open it, you gotta discard the remainder after a day or so and it only lasts about a month even if you don't open it oh by the way i will say that there is a company called century pharmaceutical they have what they call a buffered version of dakin solution that's thought to last about a year so you can look that up century pharmaceutical dakin solution d-a-k-i-n you want to pour it into the wound once daily for mildly infected wounds and twice daily for heavily infected wounds with a lot of drainage of pus things like that uh, redness Uh, Alternatively, you can most moisten, but not soak, dressings used inside the wound. And when I say used inside the wound, I mean dressings that do not touch the top of the skin, dressings that go inside into the the hole made by the open wound. If you're going to use that method, I would use a milder strength, not full strength, and observe progress. I would prefer using it as a cleanser, honestly, as opposed to a regular component of a wet wet dressing, because some studies show that use in this matter can be injurious, to developing cells. Now, having said that, if you're dealing with a very severe infection as opposed to just trying to prevent one from happening, it may be reasonable to incorporate Dakin's solution into the dressing because of just the severity of the infection. Dakin's solution can also be used, believe it or not, as a mouthwash for infections inside the oral cavity, but you must never, ever, ever swallow it. That's bleach. You not don't want to swallow bleach. Swish it for about a minute before spinning it out uh, and use it no more than twice a week. This is Joe Alden, M.D., that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. The member support brigade gets a discount on anything in our store, and it's eligible for your health savings accounts.
1: Thanks again. I think that's an extremely valuable segment that Bones put together for us. And when I when I shook the piker tree, I, I need to say that the one, not the one, but one of the members I have that never pikes out is Doc Bones. And even though I had uh, quite a bit of material by him saved up already, he put this together on his own for us, and and I'd like to thank him and Amy for all the stuff that they do for our show and our community and the preparedness community as a whole. And uh, I think that little bit of information alone may save a life someday uh, or certainly improve one. Uh, Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on DPM in relation to pastured poultry.
3: Hey there everyone, this is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. Back this week with another TSP expert counsel question, this time coming in from Marissa of Spring Hill Heritage Farm. Uh, Marissa's question uh, actually circles around something that happens with broilers when you're raising them out on pasture or in confinement called deep pectoral myopathy or DPM for short. And uh, she had this occur with a recent group of broilers, and she wants to know what she can do to help avert this in the future. Uh, So a little bit of background on Melissa. She's new to farming, and she's uh, just finished her first batch of pasture poultry. Marissa, congratulations. Thanks for joining the fight for real food. Uh, And she said the uh, the, the quality of the birds was just absolutely fantastic, and she was very, very happy with everything. With the exception of one chicken that had a strip of green meat near the breast, likely due to DPM. Now, her understanding is that this is uh, due to activities such as, you know, wing flapping in the birds that are bred to have a big, meaty carcass. Uh, her concern is, you know, the nature of raising poultry uh, on pasture kind of lends itself toward higher rates of DPM and that the effects... Uh, you know, could, uh, really turn customers off if they were to see that in the meat. And, uh, again, she's kind of wanting some advice on how to prevent or detect or just otherwise deal with this. Uh, and Marissa, I've got some thoughts here for you. Um, I have experienced DPM and, and basically what happens, yeah, it's from these fast growing broilers. Um, you know, they, they flap their wings or it can be due to inactivity actually as well. But, uh, long story made short, my understanding is, Oxygen gets deprived going into that breast area and that tissue actually kind of dies. And that's where you get that green color. So, uh, not a pretty thing, not, not a good thing. It is something that I dealt with uh, a few years ago when I was using what I would call a standard Cornish cross bird, uh, uh, you know, out on pasture like you're doing. And, uh, you know, frankly, when you sent in your question, I realized I haven't dealt with this in a number of years and I think maybe I know why. I've I've switched um you know to using a slightly slower growing uh, strain of Cornish cross. And if you're listening to this and you're interested in pasture poultry, please understand not all Cornish cross chickens are the same. There are many 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 different strains of Cornish cross out there. Now, most hatcheries and by most I mean probably over 90% of them the Cornish crossbirds they're going to have, those are the exact same birds that are getting raised in the great big industrial houses where you've got tens of thousands of chickens crammed into a nasty setting. And they are programmed, designed, bred to do exactly what these great big companies want. And I, I started out using those, and that's when I witnessed DPM. Uh, you know, those birds get done in seven to seven and a half weeks. I'm actually working with a very small family owned hatchery now called Schlecht Hatchery out of eastern Iowa. Edda and crew are absolutely awesome. And what's really neat is that they've got a slightly slower growing strain of Cornish Cross that uh it's it's been the same for a long time. Yeah, it's a quicker growing bird, you still get that big breast, but I've not noticed any DPM. My birds take about eight and a half weeks, sometimes nine weeks, to really get done, not you know, seven weeks. And I think Marissa, that it, this is one reason that I have not seen that in a really long time. So, uh, obviously you want to also try not to stir the birds up out on pasture. You do want to keep them from flapping their wings really, really hard. Um, so you, Try to be calm when you move them. Don't use machinery when you're moving chicken tractors. I'm not a fan of that. I think it should be a person and a two-wheeled dolly uh, contraption like, you know, Joel Salatin uses. Or, like, I, I just use a standard, well-built, made-in-America dolly on my farm that's that's heavy and robust, and we move our, our new chicken tractors very, very easily. Um, I, I tell you, I think that's, that's key, uh, trying to keep the birds calm, you're calm again, not using machinery uh because wing flapping can lead to this, most other instances of dPM occur probably because of being in confinement uh there are other other issues besides wing flapping that that can lead to that, but you know um it, like if you were to you know uh, take a lawnmower around the outside of a, a confinement house and 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 stir the birds up or you know if a guy's walking through there picking up all the dead birds and just you know being really loud and, you know, uh, not being gentle and making all kinds of noise and getting them all stirred up, you know, that's, that's going to lead to it. So being gentle and calm as best you can, is going to help. I think, uh, probably what I see more of now, um, are, are, are bruising and, and that's from loading, but that, that happens like right at the end, this, this green tissue that takes like days and or weeks to develop. So that bird that you saw that in that had actually occurred sometime well before you loaded it up. Um, but when you go to load your bird, be sure that you're picking them up like a football and grabbing them like you're, you're, you're grabbing them around their wings so that they can't flap when you actually put them into that crate. That's the way that you, you keep them from getting bruised. That bruising will be, you know, purple, red, bluish. Color and an inspector is going to see that and say, "Yeah, nope, you can't keep that wing or that leg or whatever because it, it's damaged." At least our inspectors here in the state of Indiana make you cut that off and get rid of it. So uh, that's one little trick from when you're you're loading them up uh, to to avoid that. But I, I think uh, you know the big thing is maybe go to a slightly slower growing chicken. And if you only had this in one chicken, I don't know how many you raised, but if you raised 50, 50 birds or a hundred, you only had it in one chicken. Uh, it, you know, it's not the end of the world. The good news is uh, you can still part the rest of that bird out and sell it if you're selling retail cuts, which you should be. If you want to make good money at poultry, you need to be selling retail cuts if at all possible. Um, so, you know, you want to work with your butcher or if you're butchering on your own farm, do an on-farm processing by all means make sure that you know you're watching for that you're telling them to watch for it and you toss that out you do not want a customer to get that that's that's how you uh, avert that on the back end with your your customers you don't want them getting a hold of that so um really those are the uh, the big tips and tricks that I have for you Marissa and I hope you find that helpful uh you, hey listen to learn more about me go out to grassfedlife.co uh tons of information out there including blog articles Lots of podcasts. And oh, by the way, many of you have asked, finally starting a YouTube channel. Been a little busy with some other projects, including the Farm Business Essentials Online course, but we're starting a YouTube channel. There will be all kinds of free stuff out there, including a segment kind of like this, but for YouTube, Ask a Farmer. Shoot me a question if you got one at Darby at grassfedlife.co. I'll be happy to answer it. And if you're into on-farm processing, like we just talked about here Grassfed Life is going to be rolling out a professional um on-farm poultry processing standalone course October 1st. You can watch for more details on that coming up at grassfedlife.co or on the podcast. But again, everything you'll need to do a uh uh processing uh poultry on farm profitably for yourself or as a business as a service for others and other farmers if you're so inclined Uh, we're putting that course together with Ben Grimes out of North Carolina who is doing it doing it well and making good money at it uh, processing his own birds and for other people so be sure and check that out and uh, the Farm Business Essentials course is coming back on October 1st. You'll be able to register for that at farmbusinessessentials.com if you're interested. I will tell you there's going to be a big, huge bonus in the month of October if you sign up for the full course. Uh, if you can't wait to get started, check out the Pasture and Poultry course that's available right now. As always, keep the questions coming. Thank you for sending those in. I'm always happy to answer them for you to try and help you out. And as always, everyone have a
1: wonderful weekend and take care. Good stuff from Darby, and I guess this might be a good point in the show to make an announcement uh, about poultry and Nine Mile Farm. As many of you know, Dorothy and I for several years ran a commercial duck farm uh, focusing on eggs. We didn't produce ducks for meat. We did eggs, and we ran them in a rotational grazing pattern. Uh, We had about 120 to 150 ducks uh, at any given time on the farm. And we're producing between 9 and 12 dozen eggs a day. And with the advent of uh, caring for our grandchildren and some other stuff, it became a non-profitable operation. We actually made a fairly good profit up until the fact that we started having to pay labor because Dorothy was busy and Dorothy wasn't working on her sales channel. So we decided the ducks would go and I would give the land a full spring to recover and see what happened without grazing it. And we've, de- we've done that, and it was a good year to do it because we had one of the most devastating droughts uh, that the area has experienced up until very recently when some real heavy rains came back in. And we're not out from under it yet. We need some more rain, and I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks we get another good soaking rain. It would really it would be great at that point because we're moving into fall, and, and so I'm hoping that happens. But I decided that the place is just too quiet. And I talked to my chickens, and my little brown hen that, that, that likes to sit on my shoulder. I talked to her, and there's a photo out on Instagram and Facebook today of our conversation, and she said it's time for new ducks to come, and they would like some duck friends, and they would like to be able to hatch some duck eggs once in a while. So we are, we are going back into the world of ducks, and I decided to do this this time as homesteaders ourselves, uh, not going commercial at all, uh, buying a few more than we need in case we have some losses. So we have eight Rowan ducks and eight. I'm sorry, eight Rowan ducks and two Rowan drakes. So a flock of ten, on the way from Metzer Farms. They will be here in mid-September, and we will have season four of the Duck Chronicles. And this time, the Duck Chronicles is going to be all about the homestead level of a duck. We're we're not going to have to worry about moving them as much and grazing them as, you know, that concerned about their grazing. They really should be in that small of a flock, a a positive influence on the land, but they should not graze to the point where it's difficult to to deal with them at all. Uh, You know, we're dealing with one, maybe one swimming pool a day that we have to, to, to dump and move and stuff like that. And it'll be more geared toward... Uh, again, the, 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 the small homestead that just wants to have a flock for eggs and you know, with bantam chickens living with them. And the bantam chickens are going to move out of the aviary and they're going to live with the ducks. I think three little bantam chickens running around, they should not be too much of a problem with their scratching. And uh, if they are, then they'll go back in the aviary. But if they're not, they can do that. And then we can build the quail flock back up in the aviary and start getting quail eggs again. And And so I think we're kind of like we just took this... This spring and summer is a chance to reboot and to let all of the work that the, 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 the flocks did for three years kind of come to fruition. And, you know, with the drought, I was like, my God, it was such a beautiful year. And I thought we were going to have one of the best years ever. And we had a lot of losses with fruit. Fruit just, like, even it was set, it just couldn't mature with the drought, even if the trees survived. We lost some trees. And the, all the herbaceous stuff was just brown. And I thought, wow, this sucks, you know, this really sucks. And with this rain, I was walking around yesterday, and it rained about two weeks ago, really heavy, for about four or five days in a row. We got seven inches over five days. And uh, everything, it's just, it's amazing. All these different forbs and herbs and stuff just coming up uh, all over the place. And it's, so it's time to bring back the ducks. As for the selection of Rowan's, it had to do with what was available, but it also had to do with, with selecting a dual-purpose duck, a duck that could be a meat duck because I do have a place that does duck processing uh, for me. And it would be very easy now to take, you know, a dozen duck eggs, pop them underneath Henrietta 1, Henrietta 2, or Henrietta 3. They all have the same you know, name. Just They're just numbered, Henrietta 1, 2, and 3, and let them hatch them. Uh, and Rowan sometimes will go broody on their own as well. So, uh, if we, we end up with some ducklings, we can just add about 11 to 14 weeks, off they go to graduation school. So we got meat, we got eggs, we got, you know, a return of uh, pest control and grazing. And, uh, but a much easier life with it. And as I said, when we sent them away, uh, it was all about a lifestyle change. And so we're adapted now to this new flow of life. And uh, ducks are returning, so just be on the lookout for that. And again, if you want to follow all the crazy stuff that doesn't make it to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, uh, Dorothy's doing a great job putting stuff out. I never would think to put out on our Instagram, which is at it's a jack life. It's a jack life on Instagram, all one word. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on gardening. No, this one is on uh, generators uh, with Stephen Harris.
4: Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. Question, Steve, is there a way to redirect exhaust from a small generator so that the generator can be kept near an occupied building or vehicle while the exhaust is safely removed? Near a vehicle? There's nothing wrong with a generator around a vehicle. A vehicle generates its own exhaust. You're safe inside the cabin. Details I have a Honda EU twenty two hundred I incredible generator. You need the six gallon fuel tank that'll run it for three days from VMSales.com VictorMikeSales S A L E S dot com Because I live in an area that gets tornadoes, hurricanes, winter storms, has poisonous snakes, evil people and well anyways, such as it goes for you, sorry. <laughs> hurricanes and winter storms. Unfortunately, we also have a lot of burglaries and theft during normal time, so a generator is likely to go missing during a prolonged power outage. Okay, when you put your generator out, put up a sign that says, Don't steal my generator. Come steal my gun. It's more valuable. It would be a great deterrent. I am currently renting a two-story townhouse. If I want to be able to secure a generator, my options are either chain it to my pickup truck, but then... I can't have it running when I have to go someplace. Uh, and, yes, I'm getting supplies together, Steve, for building your mobile battery bank as a supplement to the inside-the-house battery bank I've already built. Thank you to Energy1234.com. Thank you for the plug. So I can chain it to a ground-level deck, which is adjacent to a sliding glass door, or stick it on my second-story deck, which has a door that leads directly to the master bedroom. Now, I'm kind of commenting as I'm reading this, okay? So, look, if you're going to chain it to your ground-level deck... That sliding door near it doesn't mean crap, okay? Just make sure it's like six, eight feet away from the door and the exhaust is pointing away from the door. And if the door is open with a screen door, I <laughs> so what? It's going to be fine, okay? It's not a super cloud of death, of toxicness coming off the generator, If you start to smell generator exhaust, well, then the wind's blowing in a different direction. You need to move it. Move it in the other direction and have a point in the other direction to have the exhaust goes that way. But off the Honda, you'll smell the exhaust. It's like, I smell exhaust. Well, you just don't want to smell the exhaust, so move it. So I can chain it. And now also on your second-story deck that has a door that goes directly to the bedroom, if you put it on your second-story deck and you have your door cracked so you can have a power cable come in, you're fine. I mean, you're not going to take the exhaust and point it towards the crack going into the house, okay? You're pointing it out and away. It's going to be fine. I'll explain some of the stupidity that goes on with generators. So uh the deck that goes to the master bedroom, fine. Chain it to my truck would require leveling, le- leaving it out, ...on the street or not sitting at level because I have a steep driveway. Well, put something underneath of it on the steep driveway like some wood or some rock so it is level. Problem solved. I've seen some people building sound dampening enclosures for generators which use a fan to provide airflow. Do you think it's possible to run a fan inside an enclosure or duct to safe distance? Is there some other approach I should take? Uh, no. Okay a fan is really not going to duct away your exhaust. The energy the generator itself, the engine is a pump. It's pumping that exhaust out. Just let it pump that exhaust out. There are some things where people put external exhaust onto generators on YouTube. You can go look at them, but they're kind of a pain in the rear end to hook up and everything. But if I had an attached garage to my house, I would have no problem putting a generator at the threshold of my garage with the exhaust pointing out and extension cords coming in. Now, why do they tell you to not put your generator near the garage or in the garage? It's because people are brain-dead stupid. It's, in fact, FEMA and the Red Cross, and the U.S. government thinks you... Yeah, you listening to me, they think you are so stupid that they will not even recommend. They will deter you from owning candles to provide light in a disaster. They think candles are too dangerous for you. And we've been using candles since 500 BC. But no, it's too dangerous for you. We've only had electric light since the late 1800s. The other over 2,000 years has been candles and oil lamps. But no, we're too stupid for that. The thing is, if they say put it into your, if they said it was okay to put it near your garage, in your garage, you know what some moron would do? He'd put it in his garage and go, oh, it's nighttime, I don't want it to get stolen. He would close the garage door. It would then fill up your garage with carbon monoxide, fill your house up with carbon monoxide, and kill you. So if you want to put it on the threshold of your garage pointing out with your garage door open and keep it open, then that would be fine. There are people who have killed themselves and won the Darwin Award by actually being so stupid that they have left the generator inside the house. Yep, they ran the generator inside the house. And they thought that was fine, and they never woke up. So it's because of this that you get all of the hoopla from the government and FEMA and Red Cross over carbon monoxide in a generator, but it's not spewing a toxic cloud. It takes, I mean, if you know the symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning, you get a funny feeling in your head, then you start to get nausea, a little tired, it's like, if you get those symptoms, it's like, hey, I'm getting carbon monoxide poisoning, okay, it generally takes hours to happen, so don't let that happen, or do as our friend is doing, have a battery powered carbon monoxide detector, or have the generator further enough away, so, um, the enclosure? No. Away from the house enough? Yes. Now, if you're using the battery-powered CO detector as you mentioned, Kevin, you're fine. Okay, it, it'll start moving. And don't wait for it to go. Deet, 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 deet. If you see it moving, it, even from zero to one to nine to ten, I mean, four hundred's where it starts alarming. Even if you see it moving, then you got some CO coming in. Go move the generator. Don't wait for it to go off. Just like look at it as a number indicator always get a co detector that has a number on it telling you the parts per million that way you can look at it see if anything is coming in so here's the big thing that you're missing you're telling me all the places you can chain it up except you you, you're not chaining up where you want it which is like in the middle of the backyard or something this is real simple go get one or two cinder blocks from home depot and dig a hole dig a hole about three feet deep and put one or two cinder blocks down into the hole, run a big long chain from it and then bury the cinder blocks underneath the dirt. So you got the chain above the ground and you can chain up your generator. That way anyone wanting to steal your generator is going to have to cut the chain. Get a really good chain. At least you can have cheap chain, you know, below the ground like less than more than a foot below the ground you can have cheap chain above the ground you can have the bicycle lock chain that's hard to cut and everything else however you want to do it just make it harder for them uh also i would go to uh tractor supply store or menards i'd get four cattle panels and i would just put them around the generator with zip ties and then I would uh, go get an electrical plug and put some uh, power wire onto it, but don't wire it to the plug so it's not connected. It's just inside the socket. And run it with some alligator clamps to the fence and put a sign up that says fence is electrocuted, die at your own risk. That would be pretty much guaranteed to keep anyone away. Remember, it's not really electrified, but they don't know that, so... Between that and the chain around it, I think that they're, they're just going to go someplace else. Also, you can have a motion activated LED floodlight that's powered by the generator lighting up the generator area. So if someone walks into the area, it goes, it turns on and it's like, I see you! And there are different battery powered lanterns and alarms that will turn on a light and beep or say something with a voice when someone comes around them. These are even at Cabela's. So these are all things you can do to deter people. So in recap, put it on your second-story uh, balcony with the door cracked for the cable. Uh, chain it up to something you bury into the ground. Put it at the threshold of your garage, chained up to something. Have your CO detector inside. If you smell exhaust or get a headache, you know you got a problem. And, uh, put up those cattle panels (laughs) with the disconnected cable going to it. Remember the cable's not connected. Uh, that I think would be an abundance of caution. And even if you didn't hook up the cable for cattle panels around the generator and seeing it's chained up, it's probably enough of a deterrent that most people will go elsewhere. Also, announcement steven harris has a membership area coming soon it is like a patreon on steroids i didn't like what patreon limited me to so i made my own membership area where you can support steve harris at something like two dollars a month and get access to all sorts of goodies in one place that you've not seen before and you have seen before but it's now in all one place If you can email me and guess the 1234 name I'll be using for this, I'll give you a free year of membership. So thanks, everyone. Uh, For now, this is not out, but it will be. Uh, You can see everything I have done with Jack at steven1234.com. Thank you.
1: You know, we're heading straight into fall gardening time, and uh, we have a question for Nick Ferguson here on uh, gardening when you have a lot of tree cover and tree canopy nick take it away
5: hey there everyone nick ferguson here from homegrownliberty.com with a quick answer for one of the listeners and travis's email reads how do i deal with planting new trees and gardens on property with established canopy i have an acre property Tons of trees, mostly oak, ash, and elm. We thinned over 100 trees, and that was only about 25% on property. Septic sprayers are located on east quarter of property. Lawn under heavy canopy across southern facing side. Western side is cleared the most, and that's where I put the gardens, two race beds, and some in-ground beds. It's hard to deal with the hot afternoon sun. But that's the best place I could put the garden for most sun. How do I deal with placing new trees and gardens as well as estimating, is this enough sun? Do I just chop down more trees or try and garden in the shade? And he lives in Azle, Texas. Thanks, Travis in North Texas. All right. Assessing where to plant a garden when you have a full canopy forested area. Well, the first thing is we need to think about when your prime growing time of the year is going to be because that determines what direction and angle the sun will be hitting your growing area. And once you know those answers, you can pick a good location for the garden space and then determine how much tree removal will need to occur. And the reason we start there is because we have a few limiting factors. And one is that we can only cut down trees. We can't just put them back if we make an oops. So we need to figure out exactly where the best location is going to be and then go from there. And if you do that right, then the only trees... To be removed are the only ones that need to be removed, and I'd strongly suggest going slow with that. You can always remove another one if you decide the plants are suffering from too much shade. That's easy to do. Putting a 20-foot tall tree back takes years of growing time, so don't jump the gun. So let's hit a few of those items real quick. Where you live in Texas, summer is death time. So your growing times are going to be mostly relegated to fall and early winter, uh, kind of spring, early summer, and some in deep winter. But not a whole lot is going to do really well unless you have a little bit of season extension with uh, some greenhouse plastic. So you're looking at lower angles of sunlight from about fall and spring equinox to winter solstice. So that's lower angles you know the sun is lower in the sky so it can shoot underneath trees a little bit better so you might not have to take out as many trees as you think and there's a great app you can get for the iPhone at least i don't know if you can get it on i Android, and it's called Sunseeker, and I think it, it used to be like five bucks, now I think it's like around ten bucks, but it's worth every single penny. You can pick your location and then go into the 3D view mode and use the cameras, uh, the phone's camera to view your surroundings, and it kind of overlays the solar path and shows the angles that the sun, the path that the sun is going to take and it even has like markers for what time of the day it will be which is really cool and really handy so if you use that then what you can do is you can sit down where you think a good location for a garden is going to be and then you can by looking at your camera you know your phone screen using the camera it's kind of virtual reality it's overlaying those lines depending on where you're facing and what you're looking at and you can see the track that the sun is going to be taking and the blue line at the very bottom is going to be the winter solstice and the green line is the spring and fall equinox and the red line is i think the the summer solstice and then the yellow line is where you are currently in the year so uh Man, I would probably start with looking at the northwest corner of the house. That's likely to be a good place to start looking for a garden space. There's going to be naturally a gap in the canopy because a house is there, you know, towards the morning, uh, towards the east. And you may be able to catch a little bit more of those early morning sun rays depending on where that garden is, is placed. And you'll probably want to leave all the trees that provide western and direct southern shade. You pretty much only want that first four hours of morning sunlight hitting the plants. The rest of the day should be filtered or ambient light. So since you're an Azel, I'm pretty familiar with your environment and weather since, you know, Jack's not too far from where you live. And I've been there a couple times. So, and man, let me tell you, it's not easy to grow in your environment. So I'd suggest doing what Jack does and... Probably use wicking beds. You can grow in ground, but my gut says you're going to have more success using wicking beds. Now, as for the question, is this enough sun? Well, you have to consider that when plants photosynthesize, there are upper limits at which photosynthesis shuts down completely and the plant is doing nothing but pumping water through its leaves to try and stay cool enough to survive. It's basically just sweating. And it's not able to make any sugars, really, because it's too hot. So we definitely don't need sunup to sundown light hitting the garden veggies. It's far better for most garden vegetables to stay below that 90-degree threshold. And generally, there's almost no photosynthesis happening above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So if it's 90 out and the sun's hitting them, they're definitely above 90 degrees. And so photosynthesis pretty much just shuts down for the rest of the day. So what we want is for them to get some good morning sun and then just filtered light from about noon through the rest of the day. And, you know, depending on what your situation is, because I haven't seen it, that might mean keeping them under shade cloth in wicking beds or just putting some shade cloth up on the western side or maybe western and southern sides just to get them give them that extra edge you're just helping those plants get through the hottest uh, most brutal f- brutal part of the day just don't fall into the trap of thinking that your garden space should get all day direct sunlight now for those of you listening who don't live in <laughs> central texas this advice might not apply to you It might, but it probably doesn't apply to you. My advice for a more northern grower will be entirely different. Than for Travis here, I just wanted to make sure I went on record as saying that this advice is entirely situationally dependent and may not apply to you listening. Now, as for Travis or anybody listening, if you're interested in getting tailored information specific to your location and situation, you may want to check out my consulting page on my website, homegrownliberty.com. I offer for long-distance consulting for those of you who need help troubleshooting something specific for your property. All right, that about does it for today. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. Check out my website for consulting and lots of great information. Thanks for the great questions, guys. Keep them coming. Do good things.
1: Great stuff, as always, from Nick Ferguson. Next up, uh, we have a question for Patrick Rohrman on setting up a shop as a hobby knife maker, not maybe a full-time knife maker. Guy just wants to do it for a hobby, maybe make a few knives here and there for friends, make a couple bucks. Can you do that and be well set up for, let's say, under a thousand bucks? Patrick, take it away.
6: Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT. Knives, coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Gordon. He says, "How would you set up a shop to make knives as a hobby? What is required and what would be nice to have? Ideally, I'd like, I would spend as little as, re, as is reasonable a1,000 dollars. You answered your previous question about stock removal versus forging and I lean towards stock removal since I will likely need a belt grinder either way and money is limited. Thanks. Well, Gordon, each person's going to have a little bit different situation and call for different tools or shop, whether you got a large footprint to work in or none at all. So <clears throat> when I started making knives, I had a little shed, and I spent about a $1,000, and I bought the the basic tools that you need or are nice to have, which is a drill press, a bandsaw, a grinder, and then I build a forge. If you're going to be doing stock removal, you won't need a forge, so you'd still need a drill press, a grinder, and uh, <clears throat> a bandsaw are nice to have there's a book called fifty dollar knife shop it's a great book for uh, a beginner like yourself and you really can get started for very minimal cost the question is is how quick you'll actually be able to make knives and how much you'll be able to do uh, by hand i've seen guys build knives with and i've built a knife with nothing but a file and sandpaper, and a drill press, or a drill, but you're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, and I feel like it's not worth the time to do that for more than one night. I put together a post on my website, including uh, the four items I mentioned, the drill press, the bandsaw, and the grinder, and also even a metal bandsaw which I did not start with. And for less than $600, you can get those four tools and do a lot of stuff and do it quickly and efficiently. Now, the grinder's a 1x30 that a lot of people have used to make knives. It's definitely not my first choice of grinders to be making knives with, but it is possible to do what you need to do. When you have a limited budget, you have to get creative and work with what you have to work with. When I started making knives, I started with a 4x36, one of those combination grinders that have the disc on the side and then the 4x30, the 4 by 36 And the problem was you couldn't get right up to the edge of the, the belt to work. But I learned to adjust the tracking on it and work with what I had, and pull off some pretty nice knives for the tools that I had to work with. This one by 30 will be a little bit easier to work with, but it has its drawbacks as well. Obviously, if you know that this is something that you want to do long term, I would suggest spending more money on a grinder and getting a nicer grinder from the start. But with a limited budget, you can always... uh upgrade your tools as you go thanks for your question keep them coming i really enjoy helping answer these questions for you guys and i hope you find it useful and learn something new once again this has been patrick Rorman with mt knives stay sharp
1: Good stuff from Patrick. Next up, a guy we ain't heard from him from in a while, uh, Tim Glance of Old, Glance military, uh, Old Grouch Military Surplus. Old Glance. That actually is the right name for it, right? Old Glance. Old Grouch Military Surplus, of course. Uh, answers your question on all military gear, surplus gear, and also uh, ham radio stuff. And uh, we have a question on HF radios for Tim. Tim, take it away.
7: Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with a long-overdue expert panel answer. Um, and uh, this is an answer for Pat, who uh, is, a, is a licensed amateur radio operator, and is asking um, – he's just getting back into ham radio. He's got some VHF and UHF radio, but says that activity is kind of dead in his area, which is common in, in a lot of areas, and a lot of times you have to kind of get people on board in your area for those local comms to get people you want to talk to uh, on the air. Um and he's asking if I can recommend a good HF radio. Uh, A little background for those not familiar with these terms, Uh, VHF is very high frequency, UHF is ultra high frequency. Uh, Those terms really uh, are kind of outdated. If we thought about frequencies these days, we probably wouldn't use the very and the ultra, but it comes from the early days of radio when they considered those ultra high frequencies and didn't think about some of what we uh, have technology to use today. But anyway, the gist of it is VHF and UHF are going to be your local communications, typically done through a uh, repeater uh, or direct radio to radio, and very similar to how your local police department, fire department, all that, have their radio set up. Um, you know, a local ham radio repeater is going to cover uh, however much area, very similar to what those kind of area uh, ones will cover. So, you know, your local county or several local counties, sometimes less, Sometimes they're linked uh, either via radio or via computer, so there are ones that you can get on and talk worldwide and nationwide as long as the links are functioning. But uh, essentially, it's short-range communications. You know, you're going to get 20, 30 miles. If you've got a really, really good system, 50, 60, and some really rare ones, we have one near here that just happens to be on the highest peak east of the Mississippi, so you can get several hundred miles out of it. But once again, it's kind of the exception of the rule on VHF and UHF radio hf is what is traditionally known by most people as shortwave and with a simple hf radio uh, a simple antenna made some wire thrown up in trees in your backyard you can talk all over the world uh, on without a lot of power and without a lot of technology and pat's asking about a good basic uh, hf radio there are several good nice basic ones out there um the ones i'm going to recommend he said low cost so uh the main ones the three that pop into my eye on the low cost end of it are the Alinco DX sr eight T, uh, which is a hundred watt desktop, and they can be had about five twenty-five, five fifty. I'm looking at uh main trading company right now, and they've got five twenty-five. Or there's the Linko DX SR9T, which is um, basically a smaller version of that radio. Uh, That's You can still use it as a desktop, but it's also small enough that if you need to, you can use it as a mobile rig. You can mount it in your vehicle. You can mount it in a bug-out trailer or have all those options. Um, And another option, there's the ICOM IC718, which is a desktop transceiver. Uh, All three of those are under $600 new and less on the used market. Um, And so those are the three I would look at. For all three, you're going to need a 12 volt power supply, either you know a, a power supply you plug into the wall that's simply a transformer or switching power supply, or a uh, battery bank. Uh, just go back and listen to all Stephen Harris's talks about battery banks, since all your almost all your ham radio gear these days is 12 volt. If you've got the battery bank, you've got the power supply for your ham radio already. And the other thing you going to need is an antenna and an antenna tuner. And antenna tuners you've got your choice you can either get a manual tuner where every time you change frequencies you're going to have to go in and adjust it or you uh, can get an automatic one that'll do it for you on a budget of course the manuals are cheaper you can pick up a nice used one you know at a ham fester on ebay for under fifty bucks you can pick up new ones in in the hundred dollar range whereas you are can be twice that or a little more for the automatics um they've got their both have their advantages the manuals of course require you to do more adjustment and tuning as you go but it also puts you more uh observant and participating in what your system is doing and involved in that process so you notice hey my antenna is acting a little different because usually i tune this right here and now i can't make it work whereas uh you know if something happens and half your antenna is laying on the ground the auto tuner may just adjust for it and you don't realize it you're just wondering why you can't get out and talk much So I'd look at both of those options, and sometimes it's even good to have both. If you plan to maybe use it mobile, you leave the auto-tuner with your mobile stuff and use the manual tuner on your your desktop stuff. And then antennas, um, you know, as easy as it is to take some old wire uh, and make a dipole antenna, just get some coax and look for any of thousands of sites that will tell you how to make a dipole. Cut it for the lowest frequency you plan to use and then let the tuner adjust it. Uh, or a simple wire antenna you can make, the G5RV, I would look that one up, and some of the others are all good options inexpensively to, to get you on the air. And with all this said and done, you know, you can easily be on the air for under $700 on HF with all new equipment uh, and an antenna you build. You know, when you build your antenna, just choose good wire. Um, I use military field phone wire because it's cheap. I, I, of course, I've got a big supply of it, but even if you're buying it, it's a lot cheaper than almost everything else and it lasts forever. You can ask anybody that's been on a military base that's gotten tangled up in some old combo wire that's probably been laying there since the 70s. It's still good and intact and it's very strong stuff. So uh, look at those radios and of course there is the option to buy used. When you get into buying used there's all kinds of other options out there. Um, but those are some new ones, and, uh, you know, if you're just getting back into radio, I'd say get a new one. That way, you know, you know it's working out of the box. You're not taking the gamble of getting a used one and don't realize there's something wrong and think maybe your technique is not working or anything else. Hope that helps, and you can always reach me direct, Tim at com if you got any questions. Uh, thanks for that question, and as always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast.
1: Next up, we uh, have a question that actually came in for me on just basically what the hell's up with the cryptocurrency market, and I thought, you know, I think the person that's better suited to answer that question is Benjamin Fitz of uh Crypto Gulch Mining. So, Ben, uh take it away. And tell us what what's what do you feel about the current state of the crypto market?
8: Hey Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. I'm the expert council member on cryptocurrency and blockchain. And we had a question that came in today from Thunder Tortoise. And Thunder Tortoise, I think his real name is Ken, uh, he says, Hey Jack, what is the word on cryptocurrency? No one is talking about it. So it's the perfect time to talk about what or if to buy. Thank you. So thank you, Ken, for the question. I will say that there are people talking about it. If you look at the Google search, recent Google search history for the word Bitcoin, um, you're going to see that the searches for Bitcoin have been going up recently And that's a good sign for Bitcoin that more people are looking into it. One of the things we're seeing right now is that, as you said, the prices are really low compared to where they were in January. But if you compare them to this time last year, for example, the prices are still up from where they were this time last year for most crypto. So... I do talk to investors because I'm currently raising money for Crypto Gulch. We're selling equity in the company. And as I'm out there talking to investors, I can tell you that there are investors that do see this as a good time to buy. They're very interested in crypto, and and they see it as a great opportunity to get started now before, you know, the next big wave. Now, having said that, when you're talking about investing, you don't want to invest more than you can risk losing. Cryptocurrency is a very speculative investment. It goes up and down a lot. And there is great risk with involved involved in investing in cryptocurrency. You do not want to be taking out credit card loans or a second mortgage on your house to buy cryptocurrency. That is asinine. That is stupid. There are a lot of people that tried to do that in December and January when they saw the prices going up crazy. You do not want to fall into that trap. Now, if we look at the cryptocurrency market right now and we're trying to look at maybe what to invest in. If we look at the market, you'll want to go to a site like coinmarketcap.com. Coinmarketcap.com. The idea is they look at the current price of that cryptocurrency and how many of that cryptocurrency exist, and that's where they get the coin market cap. Just like if a stock for a company, um, you look at the total number of shares that exist, and then you look at the current price of that share if you trade it on the stock exchange, and that's how you get the market cap of a company that's a publicly traded company. So we do the same thing for crypto. It's not the best measure but it is a measure that we can all use and if we look at it right now out of the 1865 cryptocurrencies listed on coin market cap bitcoin makes up 53% most of the money in crypto is all invested in bitcoin right now if you looked at this number a month ago it was probably 40% bitcoin and 60% altcoins if you look at it back in, in January or February, it was probably closer to 30%. Um, I don't remember exactly when, but, but it got pretty close to 30%. And what that meant was that there was a lot more money spread out across all of these 1,865 cryptocurrencies. So what you're looking at right now is that most of the market feels that Bitcoin is more stable. So they've moved their money from altcoins into Bitcoin. You just look at how many, how many, uh, what the Bitcoin dominance was. How much, uh, of the p- total money invested in all the coins was invested in Bitcoin a year, a month ago or two months ago. And what we had been seeing was we'd been seeing that number go down. In 2017, you were seeing the numbers go down. And Bitcoin was becoming less and less dominant. And now it's going back up. So that means that more people are focused on Bitcoin. So that's one measure you could use. Do you want to be um, investing in Bitcoin because you think it's more stable? Or do you want to take more risk and invest in altcoins? Right now, altcoins are a riskier investment. There's a lot of altcoins out there. What I would suggest doing is I would suggest looking at the top 20 or the top 100 uh, of the coins on the coin market cap. Now I can tell you, there's a lot of coins in there that I don't like, even in the top 20. And there's a lot in the top 100 that I don't like. But there are some that are doing well. Um, They're not going down as much as the other coins. So I would look at those projects. And what you can do is you can click on the name of the coin in on the coin market cap list click on the name of the coin and then when you do what you'll see is it'll take you to a page which will show their chart so you can see their charts of their history for the past year or all time you can you can you know sort that by monthly you can see the last month 3 months year etc there's also links there to the website and any other announcements, uh, message boards, chat, anything else like that 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 coin has, that community has. That's one way to look at the coin and say, hey, is this a coin that a lot of people are involved in? Is there a lot of activity on the message boards or chat? I would go to the website and, and look at the website, look at their white paper. And the white papers a lot of times are going to be techie, But one of the things I look at is not just the white paper, because maybe you don't understand the tech, and maybe it just sounds great to you, but look at whether or not they've actually been able to implement some of that technology. Is it a brand new project that that has a great white paper and proposes some great new technology, but they haven't actually done anything yet? Then that's something you want to be more skeptical of. That's a much higher risk investment because they haven't proven whether or not they can accomplish some of the tasks that they've set out. And the other thing you want to look at is what is the use of that cryptocurrency? Does it have a use case or are you just purely investing in it as kind of like a stock, as, as speculation, um, hoping that it goes up? Some of the coins can be used to stake. A coin like Dash can be used to stake and you can earn like interest you know, it's, it's not really interest, but, but just kind of like how you earn rewards from mining, you can earn rewards from staking. And you can also, if you're staking, you can be involved in the governance and picking how the funds are spent for that coin and, and how that coin chooses to implement th- changes in the future. So that's a good use case. Another use case was Ethereum. Ethereum used to be used for ICOs. And what would happen is companies would go public using Ethereum. They would raise funds by doing an initial coin offering. And you usually paid for those funds in Ethereum. And then later you would get some other token like EOS, for example. You got EOS as a result of uh, buying into their... Uh, ICO but you did that by buying Ethereum so a lot of people were doing ICOs on Ethereum and that was a really good use case for Ethereum and that use has gone down that's one of the reasons why you're seeing the Ethereum price decline so much is there's not as many ICOs creating ICOs has become difficult due to regulations there's less people doing ICOs and There's not as many other applications built on Ethereum. There are some games and things like that built on Ethereum, but it's not the same as as the ICOs. And also with the ICOs, the companies held that Ethereum for a while as reserve funds for the development of their project. And so they weren't necessarily taking the millions that they received from Ethereum ICO. They didn't necessarily take that money and sell it right away. So they were holding some of that Ethereum. Now, most of those projects are selling the Ethereum that they received in order to pay for development and and pay for their own projects. So that's another reason why the Ethereum price is dropping. So you've got to look at a lot of things, and you might be disappointed that I'm not saying invest in this or this. The reason why I can't do that is because most people that do that are shills. They are buying a bunch of that coin before they tell you to to buy that coin. Then they can dump that coin on you as their fans buy it up. If I did that on Jack's show, he would kick my butt. So I won't do that. Also, another reason why I don't want to suggest a particular coin for you to invest in is because If that coin doesn't do well, I don't want you coming after me and yelling at me or suing me for recommending a coin that didn't go well. So instead, what I'm doing is I'm giving you some practical ways that you can go about looking at a coin and seeing whether or not it might be a good investment for you. You also have to look at your risk profile. Do you want more stability? If so, then you definitely want Bitcoin or at least one of the top coins that's been around for a while. If you have a willingness to take on more risk and potentially lose all of your investment, then you can be more speculative and you can go after some of the new projects that have good idea but haven't proven themselves yet. That's higher risk but potentially has a high reward. That's a little advice for you today. Thank you for the question, Ken. Thank you, Jack, for the platform. Thank you, Survival Podcast listeners. I hope you have a great day. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch signing off. Yeah, great
1: stuff from Ben. And I think that with cryptocurrency, we need to take a much longer view of things. But as I've said, and I do believe is the case that coming out of this, as you see cryptocurrency stabilize and I believe we'll go on another bull run eventually, a lot of the garbage will go away. This is the great purge. When we're going to see the legitimate projects come out of this doing really well on the other side of it, I think the day of just you know rolling up the next coin and throwing it out there and getting it listed and, and, and making a bunch of money on it uh, are, are long gone and, and God bless that. I don't want that to be the space that we're in. We don't need nine million cryptocurrencies. We need a, a handful of cryptocurrencies that hold their value and grow value over time and do the job that they're supposed to do well, which is enable transactions between individuals uh, that, that don't involve the state. That I mean, That's one thing we always need to re- remember about what the point of cryptocurrency is. It's not about getting rich. What it's about is enabling trustless transactions between independent parties without the need of a banking system and without the need of the state. Uh, anyway, next up I got a question for Gary Collins on, you know, working with an ND versus an MD and should you do both and, and and things like that. Gary, take it away.
9: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the simplelifenow.com where I discuss all things living off the grid. Getting ready to go off the grid, travel, trailer, travel, trailer, living, remote living, simple living, just good stuff. Primal health, paleo, all that stuff that makes your life easier. Make sure to check out my new book series called The Simple Life. It's doing really well. And to give you a heads up, there is a good chance I'll be speaking in Texas early in 2019 and signing books. So I'll keep you posted on that. Today's question this is something that actually I've discussed in the past of what I do. I do balance. I have a modern medicine and MD and I have an alternative, would you say a naturopathic doctor ND and I also have different people I'll go to. I have an acupuncturist who I've used in the past. So I kind of balance everything out and that's kind of what I recommend for people to do. You know, if you, if you rely on just one side of either traditional medicine or more of, you know, it just depends. I like to use both because I do not want to go to a naturopath for a mechanical injury. Say I have a possible broken bone, dislocation, things along those lines. I want to go to an MD for that or, you know, someone who specializes on modern medicine in that area. Now, if I'm having, say, some weird skin issue or digestive issue, something along the lines of nutrition or something I can't quite figure out in that, I usually go to a naturopath doctor for that. And if I don't get a good answer from one, I'll go to the other. And it makes it a little more complicated. But as I've discussed in the past too, no one knows your health better than you. So you have to educate yourself. Knowledge is power. One of the five principles of what I teach so when you go into one of these do- doctors, either side, if you know your body and you know what the heck's going on, it makes it a lot easier for you to relay that information to that doctor so they can figure it out or refer you to someone who will. When you go in, like most Americans today, not having a clue, well, you don't know what you don't know, right? You're, you can't explain yourself to them, so the doctor's just kind of guessing. So that's a big piece of advice that I would give, obviously, and you guys know I teach this, is that you gotta know your body. You gotta understand basic health, nutrition, exercise. It's, it's your body. You're in control of it. No one else. Well, I hope that helps, guys, and make sure to, uh, stay in touch with me. Remember, I do not use social media anymore, really. So you have to sign up for my newsletter on thesimplelifenow.com. Or, you know, that in my blog, that's the way I keep people keep up with me.
1: So Dustin sent me a question. He said, um, when is the right time to plunge into home ownership? And, uh, Here's those details. Jack, a little history. I was never educated as a youth on credit, home ownership, etc., and I've had to learn all of my lessons in the school of hard knocks. In the past five years, I've decided to pull up my bootstraps and get serious about life. I'm 38 now. I'm very proud to say I have a fantastic marriage with kids, a great job at a corporate director level. I have literally erased all debt, paid it off, no bankruptcy, including student loans, despite the fact I have no degree uh, from it. And have fantastic credit rating of 750 plus. I make a little north of a hundred thousand per year in southwest Florida, which puts our household at about the upper middle class, despite uh, the fact that my wife is a stay at home year round mom. My question is, we currently rent a single family home on one and a half acres and enjoy it. To purchase an identical home and own it would be approximately a five hundred to a thousand more per month than a rent. Home ownership is a dream of ours, but it seems the prudent thing to do on paper is to rent. How do you know when the time is right to jump into owning a home, especially without impacting the quality of life for my wife and kids? I want to own a home, but I'm not about to be house broke just to say the bank holds my note instead of my very good landlord. Should I wait until my stats, credit, lack of debt, income, give me more bang for the buck in the market? Help, I'm a relatively new listener, but I love the podcast You're a man on my wavelength, and I enjoy all the content. Even topics I normally wouldn't consider, like aquaculture, turkey raising, etc. Thanks for any help or advice. Your situation is a little different than a lot of other folks. There's no doubt that you can afford to buy a house. Uh, an income of over $100,000 a year in Southwest Florida, you can buy a house. Now, there, you can go to areas in Southwest Florida that are very, very expensive where you, you really can't afford to live. Like one of my favorite places in Southwest Florida is Sanibel Island. Um, but when you're talking about 1.5 acres and kind of homesteadish and all, you're, you're more interior. And, and, and property in that area is actually, people think it's very expensive. It's actually very affordable. I was actually kind of surprised that, you know, what you could buy a four bedroom house in a neighborhood for, even not that far from the beach, let's say 20, 30 minutes from the beach. So um, there is affordable property there. When you start looking at acreage, you get it's a little more difficult. And you've done enough shopping that, you know, you're looking at 500 to 1,000 bucks. So let's take it from your approach and let's take it from a general approach as well. From your approach, it's very difficult. To not see the value, and let's say, just pretend, just pretend that we just went out and bought a house, and our our, our rent payment went up a thousand bucks, and we're going to write a a, a a check for a thousand bucks metaphorically to the the bank of of Dustin. I almost said his last name, I don't generally do that unless people say go ahead. So the bank of Dustin's family would be a better way to put it, and we're just going to put an extra thousand bucks away in a house fund. You do that for two years, you got twenty four grand. If you still want to buy a house, it's a hell of a down payment now, isn't it? Plus whatever monies that you have saved up to do this with already. And, and maybe now we can start looking at things like getting into, uh, if you have other money saved up and you get a little bit creative, getting into the world of 20% down on your home. And now that we have done that, uh, we can avoid PMI and further reduce the financial burden of the home. If we take the long view, then we can turn into a different kind of shopper. Right now what you're saying is I want a house exactly like the one that we have and I want it exactly where we you know pretty much where it is right now and of what's available right now it's all quite expensive. If if you're happy in your life and you're not and you're not going to about pay the same money by stopping to rent it, it gets difficult it gets a lot more difficult to make the decision. There's a lot of people in a totally different situation. For what I'm renting, I could buy a house. As long as something else ain't out of whack there, it almost always makes sense for that person to buy a house. That's not where you are. You're like, it's going to cost us more. You have a hell of a deal. The person renting to you probably bought the house a long time ago. They probably owe nothing or little on it, and they're probably happy that you're a great tenant that always pays your bills, so they don't want to push you out by raising your rent. Uh, 'Cause that's generally not the way these things work out with rent. Rents are usually close to, equal to, or more than the cost to buy an equivalent property in most markets. Okay. And when I say, you know, close to, that could be within two hundred bucks under even. But in general, like around here right now, a three bedroom apartment's gonna run you twelve hundred to fifteen hundred bucks, and you can buy a three bedroom house to four bedroom house and get the same payment and that's all in. That's taxes, insurance, everything. So now there's other expenses when you buy a home as well. There's you know like when something breaks. Now the landlord fixes it, right? Especially if it's a big thing. It's a little thing. I generally fix my own shit because it's easier than relying on the landlord. I usually let the landlord know. This back when I was a renter because then they appreciate you, right? But if the water heater blows up or something, I just ended up you know out fifteen hundred bucks on a water heater. I just ended up out several hundred dollars on air conditioner repairs. That I'm glad we caught them when they did because they could have turned into several thousand dollars or more if we had not caught them when they did. So you are going to have those added expenses as well. So in your situation, I would take a totally different approach than buying. I would sit back and say, I'm going to pretend we bought a house, and I don't know if it's 800 a 1000 whatever. I would open up another savings account at your bank. There's, there's kind of a magic in the not touching of, the, of things that you create a bucket to. And I would say, we're going to see what it would be like for the next six months if we had a bigger payment. And just throw 1000 bucks or 800 bucks or whatever number you decide on in that account. Just do it. And deal with it. No matter what happens, deal with it. What that's going to tell you is, you know, we really could live this way. Or we really aren't going to like living this way. At the end of those six months, if you, if you want to go with the plan, keep putting the money in there. If you decide that's not what you want to do, put a little less money in there. But don't touch the money. You'll figure out what to do with it later. While this is going on, become expert shoppers in your market. And this is where I'm going to transition to everyone. This is how you never burn yourself by buying a house at the wrong time. There are always deals. You might find that, hey, it's just outside of this little imaginary line on a map where the price of property goes down, but the quality of life really doesn't, and I don't mind driving an extra 10 minutes. And this is the area we need to watch. And this is the other area we need to watch. And this is the other area we need to watch and watch and watch. And it costs nothing to shop except your time. And you watch every home that comes on the market, how long it's on the market and what it goes for. Go out and look at homes. Just, even if you just drive by them, get a feel for them. Watch their time on the market. Watch what they actually sell for versus what they listed for. Are they going for higher or lower? And in, in that six months, you'll become incredibly informed about your real estate market. Treat this like the biggest decision of your life, because on some levels it is. And you don't make those decisions by trusting somebody that got their freaking real estate license because they checked off enough adult continuing education hours and passed a, a test from the state. That's not who you trust. That you trust yourself. No one will care as much as you about what you do in your life. So you treat it that way when it's something this big. And at the end of that six months, reevaluate this decision for yourself. You'll have more money to go into it with. If nothing else, you can take that money and say, we're not even going to use this for a down payment. We have our down payment and other money. This six months' worth of money that it added to our house payment, this six grand is now, we need a refrigerator. When we moved in, this was broken, all of that stuff. Now you're in a much better situation. Whatever the increase is going to be when you buy a house, you need when you decide you're ready to buy or you think you're ready to buy, you create a bucket for that extra money and you start putting it in there while you shop. And every month that you don't have that money and you're watching it grow over there and you're having to deal with it, you're thinking. And that that turning that mind on is everything. And then when you find the right house that you know you can afford, that you want to live in, and you say, I want to be here for 10 years or more, you buy that house. I hate the term starter home. I hate that term. Um, because... And it's not that you might not buy a home and in two or three years decide you you know because life changes you want to go to a bigger home. I understand that but and you shouldn't feel like you you can't settle at all because that will not make you make bad decisions. but when you say starter home, what you're basically doing is denigrating in your mind an incredible asset a home a house a place to live and and If we think that way, the problem then becomes that, well, it's not good enough, and it's just temporary, and it's a lot like renting with a little savings account underneath it, and you could have probably done better without it, unless you're in a really hot market in the perfect timing, which you can never rely on. So the right time to buy a house is when it makes financial sense for you, and you have a long-term plan, and you've lived financially as though... You already made the decision for at least six months. Now I know not everybody's going to do that, but if that's at least your goal, you'll do a lot better in making your decisions. And I think that's that's the key is is being a long term shopper. And it's hard to do when when a market does heat up and houses are getting multiple officer offers unseen. You know, my kid bought in the middle of that, and I really wish he hadn't. But they, they had made up their mind, so I guided them as best I could under their circumstances. And I think they'll be okay. They still did rather well under those circumstances. But there will come a time, everything in life is a cycle. Everything that goes up comes down, and everything that goes down goes up. It always It always moves in that ebb and flow cycle. And we're moving into a phase now, like I was talking about yesterday. It's not the market so much dropping, it's the market stabilizing. And that lets property sit on the market long enough for the properties that need a little TLC to come down even further in value. And that's your opportunity. I don't think I've ever bought a house that was exactly the way I wanted it when I bought it. couldn't afford it. It was much easier to go in and slowly make modifications. And a lot of the stuff doesn't have to be expensive. If a kid, like When you look at a kitchen, this is what you look for. The size is big enough. The layout is, is pretty much the way I would want it. Because if that's the case, cabinets and countertops are not that big of a cost. When you start blowing out walls and stuff like that, completely build a new custom cabinetry and all, then it gets expensive. Never let a real estate agent tell you shit like, oh, you just knocked that wall down. They have no idea if you can just knock that wall down. And they have no idea what it's going to cost. They're clueless. The idiot that's, that, that helped us buy this house that I almost fired, but I finally was like, I'll just do it myself and get it done because I was fed up said, well, I'm going to get you a quote to get the house painted. Okay, I didn't ask you to do that, but go ahead. $20,000 to paint the inside of my house. I almost punched her in the head. I don't believe in hitting women, but I almost punched her in the head. I mean, it's like the the, the gall to even think that that was $20,000 to paint the interior of a house. My God. So don't trust real estate agents. Trust yourself. Trust your gut. Take a long-term shopping approach. There's always time. If you ever feel, I've got to buy now, or stop, that's the time to not buy. That's where you're becoming emotional about something that you have to be an effing Vulcan when it comes to. I've said this before. When it comes to real estate, I am a Vulcan. I don't get emotional. It's, it's a house. But you could lose it. I'll find another one. There's over 1.3 million owner-occupied structures in America. Uh, 130 million owner-occupied structures in America. There'll be another one. I'm not. I'm not going to play that game. 1.3 million. That's a dumb. That's a jack slip, right? No, it was like 130 million single-family housing units in America. I, I I I don't have to buy one tomorrow. And then when it comes to the negotiating, you have to be cold-hearted. When, when we ended up with a, the appraisal knife cutting the seller here and doing great things for us. My idiot real estate agent wanted us to come up with fifteen thousand dollars extra cash. I'm like, did you get your license from sending in box tops off cereal or what? You know, and then then the, the, his, their agent went to our agent with, you know, they're trying to figure out how to deal with this. And they didn't expect for the. I don't care about your problems. I'm not overpaying for a house because I care about your problems. I've never met you. You take that approach and at the right time. Is whenever it works for you, and you don't have to worry about the market at all. If you take that approach, it's, it really is that simple. And the reason you don't have to worry about the market is when the market's way too crazy, and you really shouldn't buy. That approach will keep you from buying. You won't look at the market and say, "Well, I think it's at this point in the parabolic curve of the cycle and a technical analysis." You'll just go, "No, I'm not overpaying." And you'll, you'll figure out where the deal is because there's always a deal in good times and bad. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you that one of the ways you can support this show is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z dot Go there. You see all my reviews, all of that good stuff, everything I've ever reviewed on Amazon, over 200 reviews. Everything's alphabetical. If it's there, I own it. I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't advise you to. You can check out the deals of the day. As long as you start there, when you do your online shopping, you help support us no matter what you do. Now, let me tell you about today's item of the day. I brought this around about a year ago. I'm bringing it back around. Today. Actually, two years ago. Um, this is a pole saw, like a little chainsaw. It's on a pole, so you can reach up into a tree and trim with it and limb off limbs. And It's made by Black & Decker. And I bought it. I did not buy it on Amazon. I bought it at Lowe's. And this is why. We went to my father-in-law's place to, to clean everything out. We had moved him to uh, a memory care facility, and we were selling his house. And I wanted something for my family that uh, would be an heirloom. It would be something special. Well, my son and my father-in-law had planted a tree when my son was a little boy, a pecan tree in their front yard. It grew in a big, beautiful tree. And I wanted to take a couple limbs off it and have a friend of mine named Chris uh, use a lathe and turn them into little pull knobs. For like ceiling fans and lights and stuff like that. And I figured if I make a bunch of those up, I could give every family member a half a dozen of them. And they could put them in their homes on their lights and their fans and stuff. And whenever they reached up to pull on that, they were going to touch that. And that would bring them, you know, a memory, uh, a good one. So I had him do that. But when I went there, I brought my chainsaws. And I get to this tree and I realize there's not a limb that I can safely take off this tree that won't, like, screw up the way the tree looks. There's some good ones way up high, but I can't really safely climb up and get to them with a handsaw. So I went off to Lowe's, I found this little saw, came back, took a couple different limbs off, and and got the wood that I needed to do this with. And I was like, when I bought it, I'm like, it's the only thing they have, it's a rechargeable Black & Decker. I don't know, man, you know, I we'll see, and if I figured if it didn't work good, I'd just take it back. No, I kept it, and I use it all the time now. And most of the trees I'm limbing off around here are live oaks, and you guys know that stuff is hard. That is, I mean, that's like concrete hard. And it does a great job. It's not very expensive, and I believe that it's one of the tools that should be on homesteads of, let's say, an acre or more. You get this thing and the plug-in Oregon Power Now electric chainsaw. and small homesteads, you can do just about everything you'll ever need to do. And and, and with a pole saw, you'll be able to do it safely. Now, chainsaws and safety go hand-in-hand. Hand. You need to know the rules. If you've never run chainsaws before, take a safety course with chainsaws. But once you do that, you'll understand what I mean by a pole saw being a lot safer way to take down certain branches and limbs and limb off trees, not just to, to prune them, but sometimes to limb off certain things before you drop the whole tree. Uh, I just posted, a, by the way, a totally different subject. I posted a video on Facebook uh, yesterday of a guy almost getting killed cutting down a dead tree, and I said I've said before and I talked about chainsaws on the air that when you are going to drop a tree, you prepare. Two forty-five 45 degrees in opposition to the fall of the tree avenues of egress, ways to run away. So if you're going to drop the tree straight in front of you, you need a runaway point that's 45 degrees off of that over your left shoulder and your right shoulder both cleared. That way if anything goes wrong with that tree, you have two different ways. That you have prepared, you've cleared the way, you can haul ass. This guy's dropping a dead tree, which is dead trees make dead men, and he's down like under a rock trying to cut it really low, and when it starts going, it starts wobbling back and forth. He doesn't know which way to go, and he's stuck down, and I can't believe he didn't end up dead. I mean, he was very lucky to survive, given the size of the tree and what happened, and it should have been cut much higher, and those avenues of egress should have been prepared, Uh, and they were not. So be safe with chainsaws, but one way to enhance your safety is to use extension pole chainsaws to limb off and trim your trees. And this Black & Decker tool is a good one. If it wasn't, I wouldn't recommend it. And you can always help us how? Online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That brings us to our song of the day from Elvis Presley as we wrap up Elvis week. It's called Raised on Rock, and it was written by the same guy that wrote Suspicious Minds, and one of the reasons it was written is a songwriter that got Elvis to record songs, it was good for him. So they wrote a song for Elvis. And the song invokes a lot of his own music, including original music and songs that he covered. Um, But what it really talks about is growing up as a child and as a young man in the world that became rock and roll. Uh, rock and roll wasn't a thing in, let's say, 1940. It wasn't a thing. I think it was 51, there was a DJ, I don't remember his name, in Cleveland that might have been 1951, first person to ever use the term rock and roll music. And Elvis was part of moving music to a new world, to a new thing, much as we had punk come along later on, much as we had rap music come along later on, which kind of wish we could go back and undo that, but I know some people like it. Um, but I think most of us that, that, that are here in this community that listen to this show are young enough that we don't ever really remember a world without rock music, rock and roll music in it. That just, that's not, that's not something we can even conceive of as a world absent that, but it was not so long ago. And this song really is about being part of the evolution of rock and roll. Uh, And, of course, it fed right into Elvis' ego, and he was uh, more than happy to uh, record it. Uh, I do think it's a good thing to cap Elvis' week off with, though, because it does take a look back at his career, uh, which honestly was going to be coming to a pretty bad end not too long after this song was recorded. And that's kind of a good thing to end the week on here. You know, um, I always say it make the most of your dash, guys. When when you die, they'll bury you in the ground somewhere and put a stone over your head or put an obituary for you online or in a newspaper. And One way or another, your name will be followed by a year you were born and a year you died, and there'll be a dash in the middle of it. That dash is you, and you have no idea when that second number is coming up. It could be tomorrow. It could be a long time away, and I hope for all of you that it is. But I know for some of us, Sooner or later, fate catches somebody, and it might be us. Could be the next day. So make every second of that dash, you know, worth worth living. Think about that this weekend. And uh, if you have dreams that you're not working on, get working on them because you're either moving them forward or life's moving them backward. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: Some call it folk, some call it soul But people let me tell you it was rock and roll I was raising rock, got that rhythm in the soul Every day when I get home, I can on my radio Listening to the music that my idols made I knew every single record the DJs played from honky-tonk to hound, over Johnny be good. chain gang of his train, I was raised on rock, that rhythm in I was born in a fad, thought it would pass, but the younger generation knew it would last, time's gone by, the beat goes on, and every time I hear it, Lord, it takes me home, I was raised a rock, and they river from my soul. Mozart's sonatas down the classical list. My father loved to listen to those country songs while I was in the back room talking on. I was raised a rock, got that rhythm in my soul. I was born.